0: So we are coming up on episode number 500. We're only a handful of episodes away. And when I started this show five years ago, September 30th will mark five years. By the way, September 30th is National Podcast Day. That was the day I launched the show because I thought, oh, that's kind of cute. It was like the first one, maybe the second one. I don't remember. But uh, now we're coming up on five years for the show. When I launched the show, the idea was I was going to do, call it. 50 episodes. And the idea for the show, and I've talked about this before, it actually came up when I was at the National Speakers Association. I went to a breakout session that had two gentlemen talking. Uh, One was a guy named Ed Robinson. The other guy was a guy named Jim Pancero. And they were talking about if you – one of them said if you're ever in a rut, one of the great ways to get out of that rut is – Go interview 50 successful people, because if you talk to 50 successful people, you can't help but find a clue, an idea, because here's what I've learned since that time. Success leaves clues. So when you're listening to successful people, they can't help it. They're going to give you an idea or a theory or a concept, and then you can grab that. So I started the podcast with the idea I was going to do 50 interviews. Well, we have gone way, way past that, and we're not stopping now, because every time I bring someone onto the show, I get That idea, that nugget, that theory. It's just like having my own personal university that I get to share with all of you. And today we're going full circle back to that inspiration because I have Jim Pancero as my guest on the show. And before I can introduce Jim, though, I've got to thank the first sponsor of this episode. So human behavior, it is a complicated thing, especially when it comes to working and living together. Understanding why and how people behave in certain ways, especially in groups, that's what my friends, Dr. Josh Packard and Megan Bissell, it's what they do for a living. Their podcast, The Bias Disruption, answers questions like, Puh, what is the ideal team size? How do company cultures change? And where does innovation even come from? And if you've ever wondered how to make changes in your business and you want those changes to stick, that's why you have to listen to their podcast. Megan and Josh, they use social science, real-world experience, and humor to share useful insights. Plus, if you listen to the show, you'll see they play really nerdy games. So go check out The Bias Disruption. All right, let's jump into today's show. As I said, he doesn't even know it, but he was one of the inspirations for even doing this, and that is Jim Pansero. Jim has been a professional speaker and trainer for 38 years. Now, many of you who listen to the show weren't even born. In fact, most of you who listen to this show weren't even born when he started doing what he does. He is specializing in sales. He works with all types of companies, but especially like manufacturers and companies that are greasy and grimy and oily, helping their sales teams realize how do we move the ball forward? Because I don't care what you do for a living. Sales is at the heart of your business without sales. The business dies. And Jim was one of the first people I ever met when I showed up at the National Speakers Association 10 years ago. I was sitting in the bar, having a glass of wine. There's nothing odd about that. That could have been any day of the week. (laughs) But I was talking to, to Jim, and he realized I was brand new in this business. And he gave me a bunch of advice that really set me on the right path. So I've always looked at him as a mentor. I've always looked at him who is someone who's brilliant. And ever since I started the show, I've been thinking, I should have Jim on the show. So today is your lucky day, because welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, Jim Pancero. Honored.
1: <laughs> this is great to be here. So Jim, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Well, I'm a sales and sales leadership consultant. And when I'm talking to clients, what I would tell them is to say, everything I do is one bottom line focus, and that is how do you increase your competitive advantage and profitability? So I really work with salespeople, the sales leadership the executives that are directing the sales leadership, and usually even the frontline service people, to have an integrated solution to uh, increase their competitive edge. Hmm.
0: So you didn't like come out of the womb as a sales consultant. What did you do early in your career before you started doing this? What's your
1: background? What's well, interesting that last week was my 50th anniversary of starting my sales career because in September of 1969, and that's when most of your listeners weren't even born either.
0: I was three years old.
1: <laughs> yeah. when in 1969, and uh, when I went to college, that, I knew it was that gonna was gonna the be su- yes. wait
0: a minute, that was the summer of love, and you were starting a job. You yeah, were missing yeah. out on all the fun.
1: The yeah, that was it. But I was um, so I started giving tours of the college campus as a job because I knew it was going to be in sales, and there was no sales classes back at my university. So I thought, well, I better do something about it. So I started selling. Sold all through college and graduate school and then went to work for the, the IBM Corporation in the large computer division uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s. Now, this was selling the large computers of the day, $200,000 systems, large box mainframe, raised floor air conditioning, the whole bit. It had a half mega RAM and a one gig hard drive. <laughs> that was, that was the <laughs> And it took up the whole system. room. Oh, it took up the whole room. It was raised floor air conditioning, the whole bit. <laughs> um, in fact, some of them were even water. They're still water cooled. They have like radiators in them because water dissipates heat faster than air. So anyway, and I was a successful sales rep at IBM. I had a mentor before I went through IBM while well, I was in graduate school that showed me how selling worked. Uh, he was also in the National Speakers Association. He went into IBM and decided I was going to do it a different way than what they thought I ought to do it. And it made me number one in the country for the, the year uh, selling at least large computer systems. I think I sold and installed nine when the average person was doing two and I was helping teach classes and selling. And I was teaching college part-time as a hobby. And I thought, you know, this is more enjoyable. So I decided I'd rather sell selling than to sell computers. Nice. walked away from IBM nice. and I started my, started my business 38 years ago.
0: So you've been doing this for 38 years. What do you love about the life of working for yourself, of being an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I think that, first of all, it's interesting that if I look back at my IBM career, in fact, I even tracked my income, it took me about eight years to build my income up. So I was actually making more as a speaker and consultant than I was if I would have stayed at IBM and projected what I thought I would have made. So I watched to say, I wouldn't necessarily say that you go in to be an entrepreneur because of all the money. Hmm. I think it's more the lifestyle choice. Um, I'm probably work- I know I'm working more hours than I would have ever worked if I would have stayed within IBM or the corporate world um, but I, the variety the excitement the energy and making my own thing is uh, I think probably the, the strongest emotions I've had and still love it that's why I'm still doing it
0: so, so many people who listen to this show are looking at the idea of making that jump and people who reach out to me all the time always say, you know, uh, I loved what he said about wanting to work for myself, even though it's maybe not as much money and 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 more work. I'm, I'm drawn to that being in charge of my own destiny feeling. People say that all the time. So what advice do you have for someone who's listening who that's what they want to do? They want to take that leap. They want to start their own thing, whether it's, whether it's working for themselves just as a solopreneur or whether it's it's building something that they can scale. What advice do you have?
1: Well, the first advice is don't do it the way I did it. Um, My uh, wife was uh, three months pregnant with her daughter when I quit my job and walked away from IBM. Uh, We had no money, so I financed my business with 15 credit cards because nobody else would give me a loan. Uh, And I had major surgery two months after I started uh, started my business. So it was just everything wrong in the thing. I think to be an entrepreneur, a couple of things you need to decide. The first is to take a realistic look of if this is doable. Frankly, I see a lot of our fellow members of the National Speakers Association that join and actually come to our chapter, um, and I'm thinking, and they tell me what they want to do, and I'm thinking, I don't think they're going to be able to achieve that. I would love to be proven wrong, but you just get the sense of this is, this is going to be a direction that's not going to work out, and you see they're gone within a year, and then they're trying to find something else. So one of the first things to do is make sure that you've talked to others and that there's some sounding on this vision that you have. Now, I'm not saying don't dream, but at the same time, let's be more realistic of, is this going to be a revenue source that can support you? Because being an entrepreneur is not saying I'm going to be independent and creative. Being an entrepreneur says I'm going to be responsible for my and my family's income and well-being based on the business choices I make. Mm. So as part of that, let's make sure that's founded. The second thing is uh, be prepared. If you're an entrepreneur and you want to uh, fit, if you want to quit your corporate job, um, I would put together a one-year plan where you spend one year on weekends and evenings just preparing and getting ready, saving money, getting your debt down so that you can go for a couple years with very low income and still survive. Um, entrepreneurship is based on longevity. And a lot of people really have a great idea. They have great energy. They're putting all the work into it, but they ran out of money and they have to go back to work.
0: Well, that kind of leads us into the importance of sales, right? I mean, this is what you've taught people for a long time. But, you know, a lot of people I know who start their own business, they're really good at what they do. They have a specific skill that usually isn't sales and they want to go market that skill or they've created a product that is unique to what they do, but they don't know how to sell. So why do you think it's important for people who are especially early stage in their business to learn about
1: sales? Well, the reality of being an entrepreneur is that you have to do all the functions of your company for a while alone. Where if we were, let's say, Tom, you and I had started a company and we had 20 employees, there's a good chance we don't have to be as concerned about sales because we hire salespeople. So even though we have to manage them, we don't have to actually go out and do it. Um, or the, the accounting of our business and how you run the back office business and pay your bills. Just this full range of responsibilities. If we look, at, one of the things I've noticed is that everybody I see, we can we can talk about it being a triangle. Of everybody I see, there's going to be three skills that are going to make up their success as an entrepreneur or in business or in sales. The first corner of the triangle. Is their technical industry and in, in, uh, in technical industry and product knowledge of what they're doing? So, if you're going to be a consultant to engineers, you know engineering, and you can talk technical about what's going on. Um, the second corner of the triangle is your financial and business skills that you know how to run a business, how, how to do expenses, and how to maintain profitability. And then the third area is your selling and marketing skills, your ability to promote and win business to grow your business. The problem I watch is the average individual I see embraces one area of the triangle, tolerates a second, and completely ignores the third. (laughs) And the one that's usually ignored, especially with entrepreneurs, is selling. Because most people get into being an entrepreneur because of the business or technical idea they have, not because, hey, I really want to sell everything myself. So because of that, that's usually not the leader into it. So when I meet entrepreneurs, the biggest weakness I see in the average entrepreneur I come across, whatever the entrepreneurial business is, but this independent business owner, they might even have a couple employees, but they're the entrepreneur because they're holding the whole place together. Usually sales is consistently the weakest area. So they network and they go on to Facebook to talk to their friends, but they never make a sales call. I'm amazed how many of our friends spend all their time on Facebook talking to each other about how they're not getting any business, <laughs> but they're not spending any time on LinkedIn trying to find business.
0: <laughs> so you've been doing this 38 years. So you bring up an interesting thing because you mentioned social media. So how has this whole trend of social media, how has it changed sales
1: or has it? Oh, it's, um, I actually in my presentations will talk about this as my opening. Because I say that, you know, it's kind of neat that I'm celebrating 50 years of doing anything, um, of having been committed to sales my whole life, read all the books on selling. I know most of the selling experts, national, that are out there as personal friends, Uh, having been connected and involved in all of this. um, I watch that there's been more change in selling in the last four or five years than there has in the first 45 years that preceded that for me. This has been a dramatic change in selling just in the last few years, and it's redefining business, it's redefining selling, and it's redefining buying. So, so what are those changes? Well, that cost extra.
0: <laughs> Give us
1: a few. <laughs> yeah. Give us a few. No, and, and the biggest change, I, I could t- turn it this way. If, if you allow just a moment of the history of my business. When I first started my sales training business, nobody knew what that was. And when I left IBM, they kept saying, you mean you're going to be like Zig Ziglar? And I finally said yes, because that was the only frame of reference they had. I wasn't going to be a motivational speaker. I was going to be a trainer. Um, but that was close enough that they, they could understand that. And what I watched happen is the first 10 years of my business, I would call up companies and say, hey, do you ever thought of sales training? And they go, wow, we could have that done. It was an unknown entity. <laughs> so I was you know, like a now, missionary. Now they, I-
0: now they get those calls every day.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. That's, well, that's the change. So the first phase was I was actually introducing my industry to say, have you thought about sales training? And they go, well, no, why? And then I would sell them on sales training. I would even come in and do a free lesson just to prove they needed it. It would help. Then the second phase became one as our industry got a little bit more well known. The second phase became one of a dialing for dollars. I'd, I would leave a hundred voicemails in a week. I would have twenty conversations. I send out five proposals. If I was in all week, that was keep my business going, and it was a dialing calling. CRM systems, uh, as they first came out, were absorbed by um, the speaking business because at the time it was all everybody was just pumping the phones. Today we've reached a third phase. And the third phase is I'm not answering the phone, (laughs) that the average buyer doesn't answer the phone anymore, even when they're buying from you.
0: So that's true. So I started my career in sales not as long back as you did, but like 1991 ish, something like that. And I used to have sort of the old recipe box with the A through Z and little three by five cards. And I can remember cold calling like presidents of companies and they'd call me back and talking to Or, or they'd answer the phone.
1: Yeah, I actually had one group that's agreed to buy my video products and promote them to all of their members on their website. Huge organization, probably going to be 100,000 people I'm going to be exposed to of this group of associations. And the one condition they had that they would like to sell my products is I had to promise to stop calling them. (laughs) Because you called them for for so long. You are. Stop your marketing (laughs) calls. If you stop calling us because we're tired of hearing all your phone calls, uh, calling us. I said, well, you never call me back. You never answer. Yeah, but we're tired of your calls. If you, if you stop calling us, we'll, we'll sell your products.
0: That's, that's, that's very funny.
1: Which is the optimum. See, what, what's happened is we have had such an information overflow and there's been such a, um, a hibernation go on of everybody on their cell phones. I mean, it was fascinating. I was stuck on a bus. The bus broke down on a car rental bus. Now, ten years ago, everybody would have started talking to each other because of the delay in their travel, and there would be some conversations. Nobody said anything. Everybody just went right to their phones.
0: Well, I see that because you know I, I keynote or master of ceremonies association conferences, and it used to be people would walk into the room like twenty minutes early to get a good seat. And somebody would sit away three seats away. And after a couple seconds, they'd be like, hey, where are you from? Nowadays, everybody pulls out the phone. Nobody wants to uh, uh, interrupt anybody else. And I'll walk around the room. Nobody's talking to each other. And it's like, you're, you're at a talk on, here on, on how to achieve potential. You're at a talk on how to network better.
1: All of these things involve people. Look look to your right and look to your left. Come on. Very insightful. And so because of this, there's also reached a comfort that I don't have to to respect your phone call or your message. Mm -hmm. So if I call you and you don't want to talk to me, you'll just ignore me. Where 10 years ago, you would have called back and say, I don't want to talk to you.
0: Right. There there, there definitely used to be that, that politeness of, I'm not interested in your product, but thanks for calling. Where now it's just Because there was the
1: volume there is today. Right. I get 10 robocalls a day Mm -hmm. on my desk phone. Yep. So because of this, Business in my business has shifted the last year dramatically. I have, I believe, reinvented my business in the last 13 months because I had to shift my business from a dialing for dollars telemarketing company to a marketing company. So that I'm sending out a lot more text messages and a lot more emails than I am actually making phone calls, even though I'm still keeping up the lists and working them. These are are not cold calls. These are people that have used me in the past or have met me or somehow we've had an interaction and they showed interest. So I found I have to do a lot more marketing. I've posted in the last year, 200 videos on LinkedIn, Facebook, Vimeo, YouTube, Instagram, and my website, Mm -hmm. all with the idea of starting a conversation. People ask me, what's my marketing strategy for my business? And I say, it's very simple. I live here in Dallas. I said, every morning I go downtown Dallas and stand on the corner of Facebook and LinkedIn, hold a sales Bible over my head and start screaming till somebody stops and and gives me money.
0: (laughs) That's actually a great analogy, Jim. And it's interesting because the businesses that you traditionally have worked with, who are a little bit more blue collar-ish, a little bit, what's what's the actual term you use, grimy you, I use, you have great I'm, I'm
1: really big in the HGD market, which stands for heavy, greasy or dirty,
0: heavy, greasy and dirty. I always liked that. But but one of the things is, is a couple of years ago, you referred me to somebody uh, for an event uh, to speak to a sales team. And he dismissed me out of hand because when he looked at my stuff, he thought it was all going to be about using social media, which was funny because he totally misinterpreted everything it said, because the reality was it was in a social media crazy world. How do we get back to conversations? And he told me, oh, our business is all about conversations. We don't believe in any of this online stuff for salespeople. And he should have hired me because that was really my message. But it always stuck in the back of my mind. And in the last year, I wonder how many of those, you know, heavy, dirty, greasy, grimy companies are realizing, oh, we kind of have to play in, in the LinkedIn world,
1: too. Well, I think we have to look. If you look at a sale, a traditional, and most of my work is within distribution and equipment sales. I do work in services, but um, I don't have the reputation there as I do within distribution, parts and pieces distribution and equipment sales. Uh, I'm working in agriculture with selling farm equipment. How do you sell a $400,000 combine when yours is $50,000 more than the competitor's? um working with assembly line manufacturers right now working with just all kinds of distribution worked with the aluminum extruders council association of the uh, companies that extrude aluminum and set to sell and when you have a now we have to divide things when you're an entrepreneur you've got to worry about social media when you're a sales when you're one of 10 sales reps working for a distributor there's a good chance social media is not going to be on your plate. It's not one of your responsibilities. Somebody else will. Now, it's a problem convincing the company that they should have more of a social media presence, but that usually means they hire a 22-year-old <laughs> and, and turn them loose to just start posting and listing and putting stuff up there and guiding them through it. Um, so that if we look at that, there's still a role of selling that is on today. It's just harder to get the initial contact, mm-hmm. but eventually you're gonna to have to talk to somebody on the phone or face-to-face and convince them that they wanna buy from you versus all of the other other options that they have available to them.
0: Well, if you just look at our industry, I've seen stats that are all over the map, but the one I kind of grab onto is there's 200,000 people who are actively working as as speakers and trainers uh, in the types of stuff that you, you and I would do. And that's a big number. And so what I find is, is that if I can get someone to talk to me, if we really have a conversation like they've put me on their short list, I almost always win. However, it's hard to get people to talk to me. And it's so interesting because I just closed a deal with somebody the other day. And for two years, I've been trying to get them to talk to me. And afterwards, she said, why didn't we have you two years ago? and i didn't want to say cuz you would never take my call cuz you
1: wouldn't take my call and
0: my answer was well it always happens when the timing's right but it was still like you know you know she acted like we hadn't been in some sort of back and forth discussion for you know 2 or 3 years and it's like once i got her on the phone she's like oh my god this this stuff you talk about about the gap between potential and performance that's what i'm struggling with and it was actually with her sales team she goes that's what i'm struggling with is we have so much potential and there's a gap. And it was like, she was like, duh. But it is, you can't sell it unless they talk to you.
1: It's like you've heard selling referred to as a funnel system. It's an old term probably out of the 40s, 1940s. But with the idea that you start with a wide base of customers and each step narrows it down till you get the final ones that actually want to buy. And you can use phases to talk about that selling process. The first phase is the collection phase where you just try to find people to talk to. That'll listen to you, getting the, the attention phase. Then the second phase is once you got their attention, you got to validate it so that you can prove that, yeah, you're worthwhile now that they have a conversation. Then the third phase is the customization or the fitting phase. You talk about how you would adjust it to fit to their unique culture and environment so they feel it's a solution that would fit. And then you move to the implementation phase, and then you use to the regeneration phase of getting more work from them. Yep. So as we look at this process, what's happened is the middle part of selling and validation really hasn't changed that much. The part that's really changed is just the feeder system because it used to be we could use a feeder system of picking up the phone. Now we got to have a feeder system some other generation, Mm -hmm. but it still is going to lead to telephoning and selling. I think one of the things that has to be identified is a lot of people are having a hard time also getting responses from people because they got nothing to say. Uh, The average salesperson, if you ask them that, that there's a, there's a question in selling that I center my programs on. And I believe it's the toughest single question in sales for a salesperson to answer. And that's when a customer sits across from you, a prospect, and says, look, you're the third vendor I've talked to about this stuff this week. Why, based on all the competitive options available to me, do I want to buy from you? The problem is the average sales rep gives the same answer everybody else does. They say, well, because of our high quality products, our strong level of support, our competitive price, we're not the cheapest, but we're competitive. (laughs) And you get me. And that's it. So the customer goes, "Okay, I don't hear any uniqueness. And then he buy the cheapest price they can find because they ask you to differentiate and you couldn't.
0: Well, it's interesting when I go in and talk to banks, which is a a vertical that I've done some work with, I always ask them, what differentiates you? And the first, the answer from a bank is always the same thing. Well, we're a relationship bank. And Mm -hmm. I say, you know, when I ask about your differentiator, if you give the same answer as every other bank, it's not a differentiator. It's not a differentiator.
1: High quality products, strong support, competitive price. And you get me is this, this, this go to generic solution. So the customer just hears blah, blah, blah.
0: So, Jim, oh, go ahead. Oh, so like I mentioned, what I talk about is this gap that exists between potential and performance. And I've interviewed 500 plus people and I've surveyed you know hundreds more about why they think some people are able to get farther across that gap and reach more of their potential. So you've worked with tons of companies over 38 years. What's your take? Why do you think some people can get across that gap between potential and performance and other people just get stuck and fall into the abyss?
1: Uh, and, and that that's, I, I don't think there's only one answer. I think there's several contributing factors. One contributing factor is to your passion and commitment to what you're about to do. So I watch a lot of people come into our industry, speaking and training, and they, they're saying the right words about what they want to do but there's no action being done. It's like they're not setting goals. They're giving you their wish list. They're giving you their prayer list of what they would like to have happen, but of not doing anything for it. The second thing is getting help. Um, If I would identify over my 38 years as a professional speaker, consultant, and trainer, the biggest single uh, exposure or gap or the thing that prevented me from being more successful Was I didn't get help soon enough, even when it was offered, because I knew what I wanted to do. I had a vision where I didn't listen to others that it could have helped give me insight and direction a lot sooner, Uh, is making sure that you have a resource of somebody. The third is um, there's a problem, and that is most people, most entrepreneurs are like the Hilari bird. Ever hear the Hilari bird? It's a three-foot bird, lives in four-foot grass, spends its whole life saying, where the hell are we? It's on the Discovery Channel. (laughs) <laughs> but this idea of they only think one move ahead. So they decide they want to start a business. Well, I think I'm going to quit my job and start selling. Well, they didn't think ahead and think what their plans were, what their messages were. I watched people start their own business and they didn't even get stationary printed yet. <laughs> you know, or a business card or any of the tools they need that are still basics because they did a ready fire aim philosophy. They were only thinking one move ahead. So part of this is to think what's your process going to be in thinking out and thinking more moves ahead in getting help and opinions from others. The biggest change I watch in entrepreneurial business is mastermind groups because that's really a phenomenon that's only been around about the last 10 years. And so I really missed that. I tried a couple of them. The group just didn't gel like sometimes happens. But I didn't even see the need for it for almost 30 years. Uh, it just wasn't done. Or it was really the exception. It wasn't the rule.
0: So you've hit on a topic that we talk a lot about here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do because I've had a mastermind group now for six years and I don't think I'd still be in business if I hadn't teamed up with these other three speakers and we're all very different, but we just had a meeting, uh, a, a video call earlier today and we just, we go through our books, we go through what's going on, we talk about you know good wins, we talk about things we've lost, we talk about what we need from each other and then from month to month, we're constantly one-on-one on the phone or sharing things. Someone's got a book coming out so we're all kind of plotting to help with the book launch and you're right if you try to do it alone you can't do it and and having that that peer group that mastermind group allows you to see things that you wouldn't have seen through your own vision because we all sit in our chair we can only see so much but somebody with a different perspective goes uh dummy what about trying that and half of the great ideas i've had have come from somebody just nudging me from the sidelines so thank very valid. we talk very a lot about, we talk a lot about uh, about mastermind groups and mentors. And so again, I said it in the beginning, thank you. You've always been a good mentor to me because you're always I'm there honored. as a good sounding board as I've been trying to figure out this crazy business. So Jim, I've got a couple more questions for you, but before I let you go, I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Jim Pancero. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you do, jump over right now, well, not right now, wait till the podcast ends, to podfly.net slash podcast. Cool Things, and check out the special offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Jim, I call this show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's the coolest thing you're doing in your business right now?
1: I think the coolest thing that I'm doing is really part of this reinvention, uh, and that is changing my whole marketing and presence. We've rebranded myself. I've completely redesigned all of my marketing pieces and logos and uh, banners for websites and all the other stuff. In fact, our website is the last thing that we're in the middle of programming right now because we already have it designed and we're just implementing it. Um, But I would think that the coolest thing that I've done and that's had impact for me is um, my uh, LinkedIn presence. Now, we're posting all these videos. I post on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday new videos, and Thursday we call Throwback Thursday, and it's a video from the past that we put in, but I'll post these four videos every week. Um, I don't see anybody else doing this kind of volume. Uh, in the market.
0: Yeah, well, and it's definitely, I've done, I've not done that volume, but I've done some and I do notice the feedback I get from the videos that I do is uh, is, is very positive and, and has actually led to business. So I think you're definitely onto something.
1: And as I continue that, um, a couple of things uh, that's been really cool about it. The first is that I actually ask in my audiences now when I present like to associations or even in-house programs, I'll say, raise your hand if you've watched any of my videos before getting here. And I'm getting 20% having raised their hand. So at least in my market, I'm, I'm seeing visibility of this. The second thing that I'm seeing is that it is starting conversations. Now, what's interesting is we post on all these different platforms because we can, but I'll get 500 views or more on LinkedIn. I'll get 25 views on Facebook. I'll get 20 views on Instagram, and I'll get maybe 15 to 20 views on YouTube in, uh, in, um, in and Vimeo so that it's, it's still a LinkedIn-driven market, even though LinkedIn is a fairly small platform when you look at Facebook and the other areas. Now, if you're an entrepreneur selling to individuals, then uh, like you're selling home services or something like that, you want to be on Facebook. But if you're selling to businesses, LinkedIn, I see, is the the way to go. The other thing is we have actually posted some articles that I have written in addition to um, putting these videos up. And the articles get one-tenth the amount of views that the uh, videos do. Mm -hmm. So I also see just as a form. I have found you need to keep your videos under three minutes. Yep, that's right. If you're not good with video, you need to keep them under two minutes. If you're (laughs) okay with video three minutes, if you really are strong on video, you might push it to four minutes. Uh, but that's about it. Uh, otherwise, people turn off. As far as these standalone, now an interview podcast gives you the opportunity to go longer because of the interactivity of it.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't actually use. Head. the I don't actually use the video from this. This is my podcasts are all audio. I don't record the video. Uh, but that's. Mean, I got dressed I for this. Yeah, you didn't need to comb your hair. <laughs> as you'll see, I, I didn't. I didn't even put my contacts in yet this morning.
1: <laughs> but so within this, um, it is. To me, the coolest thing is I found a new way to reach the marketplace. I have concentrated, all of my videos start off with helping you as a leader of your sales team Mm -hmm. because of focusing that, because sales is too general a topic to approach on the internet. It's just too wide a base. There's too many players. It's too wide an audience. You'll never get an attention. Yep. So for me, I concentrated on sales leadership because not only that was where my expertise was, a lot of content in it, but there wasn't a lot of other national presence in that. So that has worked for me. Others are very, being very industry-specific or industry-focused in what they do. Um, and, and so I think that's probably the coolest thing for me. And it's working. It takes a lot of time. takes a lot of energy recording these things and doing all the work around it. Uh, but it's the basis of my business now.
0: Nice. So, Jim, when you look out at the world of entrepreneurship, the entrepreneur sphere, who do you look at and say, wow, he or she, they're doing the cool stuff? Who do you,
1: who do you admire? I don't actually have one person, but I admire attributes. I admire the attributes of hard work that I see people that are ringing my doorbell or will stop me. And it's evident how hard they're working at what they're doing, or they talk to me about their business and the drive and energy they have behind it. That impresses me. It impresses me with the technical skills. I am a boomer. I apologize. I was born too early. So that all of the technology that I watch my daughter, who's in her late 30s, that she just breezes through, I still have to put attention and work on. So I'm also impressed with the technological uh, professionalism of entrepreneurs today that I see that they are running all of this off their cell phone. They have all these things. I have staff that helps me, and I talk to others they are doing it all themselves, and I'm, I'm kind of impressed that they have that ability because I don't.
0: So the last question I love to ask people who come on this show is, what do you do to give back to the greater good? Because I think as an entrepreneur, we're very fortunate. We, we get to sort of craft our own way in the world. But I think when you're fortunate, you, you have to find ways to serve others. So so what do you do?
1: Well, this was this was part of me becoming an entrepreneur is I wanted to, uh, to do more. Uh, and so for me, that's uh, being an entrepreneur, you have choices. And so for me, the choices are that I get to put attention to groups that are uh, part of the greater good of helping others uh, to improve what's going on for them. So the two big things for me, and, and frankly, it's very selfish on my part because I get such joy out of doing it, is I'm a photographer. And as a photographer, I volunteer with Special Olympics as one of their staff photographers and video their events. In fact, you can see my video, my pictures, if you want to see them at, at www.special.pancero.com. Uh, you can see the photos. We have a website that the athletes can then download the photos. I think we had ten thousand views at our website last and, year. And I've seen for your pho- athletes and families.
0: And I've seen your photography, and it's absolutely beautiful.
1: Well, thank you. It's it gives me joy. The second thing is, and I'm very honored about this. I am the current national chair of the National Speakers Association Foundation, our benevolent side of our association. I think we have about four and a half million dollars under assets. Uh, All aimed and responsible for helping our members who are in need. I think last year we gave away about a quarter of a million dollars in total to speakers that were having crises outside their control and helping them and getting involved and now getting to be the chair and running that is uh, probably the biggest honor I think I've ever had.
0: And a lot of associations uh, in industries have foundations where they help out people and, and things like that. But I think it's been really interesting, the metamorphosis in the last few years, and part of it is your stewardship of being able to help people when these natural disasters hit. Fires, hurricanes, we have people who are part of our association who live all over the country. And when these natural disasters hit, people's homes can be wiped out. And yet, if you're a professional speaker... You still got to get on the plane and go deliver that keynote because there's 800 people in a ballroom in Chicago who don't care that your living room is underwater. And with that, there's certain things you have to do. You have to be able to, you know, pay your mortgage, pay the company that extracts the water. Uh, And I think that uh, the NSA Foundation has done a great job of really stepping up immediately when its members are in distress. And I know we also help people who have medical issues and other types of things, but uh, with these national disasters, I think that NSA Foundation has really led the uh, the industry foundation world with what they've done. I think it's
1: been phenomenal. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, it was an honor. Now that's all of our natural disaster support and relief is being led by our fellow member, Marilyn Sherman. Yeah, she's great. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's a neat thing. And even though I got to lead the project, um, it, we had probably 100 volunteers involved. One mm-hmm. of the things that's pretty exciting is when something happens that's significant, how many people step up and saying, how can I help?
0: Absolutely. Hey, Jim, thank you for being a guest uh, on episode number 494 of Cool Things Entrepreneur. I'm sorry, 496 of cool yeah, things, yeah. I was concerned. I didn't do.
1: want to be four. I wanted to be no
0: four four. Doesn't it wouldn't have suited you? So four ninety 490, four ninety six of cool things entrepreneurs do. I really appreciate that. If someone's listening and they're like, I got to know more about this this fifty year sales guru. How do they find you?
1: Uh, first thing I would suggest: connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, and you can see these videos. If you go to pancero.com, P-A-N-C-E-R-O, pancero.com, you can sign up for my free newsletter that comes out every Friday, and the newsletter just lists the links and the descriptions of the four videos that I've posted this last week. I also have some video products on selling you might be interested in that you can find at advancedsalesuniversity.com, my website for my products, advancedsalesuniversity.com. Nice. And I'm happy to answer anybody's questions if you call me, because one of the things I found under the new market is sometimes the side conversations that start up are now the major efforts to grow everybody's business. Yep, absolutely.
0: Well, Jim, thank you again for coming and sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and just being a friend. I much appreciate it. And thank you to everybody who tuned in. I say it every episode. If it wasn't for the audience, we wouldn't have a show. If you like this show, most people find it because of word of mouth. When I meet somebody and they say, oh, I listen to your podcast, I always say, how'd you find it? And they say, oh, my boss told me about it. My sister told me about it. My mom is a big fan. So make sure that you're telling other people about cool things entrepreneurs do, especially over the next two weeks as we're headed to episode 500. And wherever you get your podcasts, be it uh, you know uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever, go and leave a review and give it the, the, the happy little five stars. Or if you're not a five-star person, four stars. If you want to give it two stars, Go review somebody else. Uh, but seriously, uh, those, those ratings and reviews on the sites where you get your podcast, that's how we get discovered. I always show up in the, the, the top 200 of business entrepreneur podcasts, but we'd like to be higher. So uh, uh, go in and tell a friend. That would be awesome. All right. That wraps it up for this. Get ready. We just got a few more episodes until that big number 500. I'm kind of excited about it. So I'm going to challenge you, though. Go out there and try new things every day. Don't get out of your rut. Don't do the same stuff all the time. Push yourself. And while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do Podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on
1: Twitter at, at tom.singer.